trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as a necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. The ABA Journal's asked and answered is starting a special series about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and our first guest for this series is Brian Cuban. He's an attorney based in Dallas who's in recovery for alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April 2007. Brian frequently speaks and writes about lawyers and mental health, and he's the author of two books, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, and The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. Due to the coronavirus, Brian and I are both calling into the podcast from our homes. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Stephanie. Yes, of course. Now, I think a significant amount of your work is public speaking, usually, on attorney wellness. How have things changed for you since March, when uh, many states, you know, issued stay-in-place orders? Uh, it, it's changed dramatically. I, uh, as you said, my, a significant portion of what I did last was uh, speaking primarily at big law firms, AM law firms. And this year, uh, that's not so much, right? Because everyone shut down. But it's, uh, it's an issue that's affected the uh, public speaking profession dramatically overall. It's not just me. I've been curious for you folks to do so much public speaking. What's it like not being in airports at least once a week? That is an interest. It's been an interesting change. Uh, I traveled a lot last year, probably about 70,000 miles. And this year is zero. So that has been uh, an interesting change, interesting downtime. But it's uh, as part of staying focused, staying balanced, staying on the beam. I'm using that time to, I hate the term, but I'll use it, pivot. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and, and refocus on ways to make an impact from uh, where I am. Why do you hate the term pivot? Because it's overused along with webinar. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me how you are, what are some ways you have found to refocus since it started? I have created my own studio with a teleprompter, with green screen, and I have started cutting uh, wellness videos and doing that, which, uh, which I put out there and, uh, focus on different legal topics in general in recovery and mental health topics in general. So I've done that. And it helps me too, because I need as part of my recovery to feel that I am giving back and impactful to somebody who may be struggling. So, well, I, uh, what I can't do live, I now try to do through video uh, from my house. And that's important to my recovery. Well, and can you expand on that a bit? I have heard other people in recovery say that, you know, when they do things like podcasts and speaking engagements, it is a really important part of how they stay well also. Can you kind of talk about that a bit? Sure. Uh, Everything I try to do in terms of speaking has a primary goal of hopefully impacting one person that I may never know about who will consider something they are going through and take a step into hopefully positive change. 
when I speak, I'll speak at a firm or I'll speak at a ABA bar conference or local, and I'll get an email from someone who will tell me that they are going into, they are starting a recovery program uh, because of something they connected with in my talk. They now have a better context of how to speak to a family member, a fellow lawyer. So those are the things I strive for. Uh, the secondary or equally as important is to strive that at least one person connects with some part of my story, which is why when I speak, I don't get up there and, okay, well, I'm in recovery for this, 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 and now I'm better. Anyone can do that. The goal is to, for me, is to cover a broad range of my existence so people understand that we are more than our struggle. We are a story starting from the time we are born to the present day, and that story is born of cumulative trauma, pain, grief, happiness, sadness, and all of these things that make us who we are. And that is how I want to connect with people on an empathetic human level versus just the struggle of the moment. I'm curious, since you started posting your videos, are you still getting communications that what you said really struck someone and they're going to reach out for help? Sure. I get emails, tweets, uh, direct messages, uh, Facebook messages from law students and lawyers and people just in recovery, what eating disorders, uh, addiction, it, just in depression on a, a weekly basis. And I am not a therapist. Now I have, I am a, uh, I have passed my, uh, on my way to becoming a, re a certified recovery coach, but I am not a therapist. So my goal is never to diagnose someone. My goal is to give the insight of my lived experience. Right. Back around late March, when states started issuing stay-at-home orders, there was a concern from people who do mental health work in the legal community that the added stress of, you know, not knowing if your clients were going to pay or if you'd have, you know, a job, coupled with staying home all the time, might exacerbate acting out behaviors. Do you have a sense of whether those concerns have played out? Or maybe it's been the opposite and people are more aware of what's going on and more mindful about how they approach things. I think it's I think it runs the gambit, but we have and every situation is going to be different. But from the legal profession standpoint, we have to remember that lawyers, especially ones who are dealing with uh, mental health issues, whether it's depression, whether it's addiction uh, or other mental health issue, they deal with multiple layers of stigma. Let's use somebody who's a problem drinker, uh, quote unquote, alcoholic. And I quote unquote, because alcoholic is not a medical diagnosis. It's a label. The diagnosis is alcohol use disorder. So somebody's struggling with uh, problem drinking already. There is the stigma of society that says uh, that looks at it as a choice and a moral issue. Then there is the stigma on top of that that uh, the legal profession looks at any kind of struggle as weakness, right? We're, we're I, my favorite term, educationalized in law school, <laughs> mm -hmm. as uh, to take advantage of vulnerability as part of the adversarial process, not be vulnerable, which is a pivotal linchpin of recovery, the ability to be vulnerable, allow ourselves to be vulnerable to our struggles. And then we have the stigma, the specific stigma on top of that that we are looked at as people who all make a lot of money, right? 
mm-hmm. when 75% or more of the legal profession is, I don't know what the stat is, but I'm sure it's out there, is below the AMLAW level. It's small firm, medium law, and solo. And so many lawyers are financially struggling. And I have seen that anecdotally. A lot of lawyers don't even have health insurance or they're de facto uninsured because the deductibles are so high. So there is this shame that I've seen lawyers deal with that we're supposed to be taking care of family, this persona mm-hmm. that we make all this money. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have you need this flow of clients and lawyers, a lot of lawyers know exactly how many clients they need a week, right, in the pipeline to pay their rent, to live, to maintain their lifestyle. And that has trickled and it's shaming and and it can be shaming because uh, we have the stigma of of we are supposed to be this affluent profession. And that's just not the case for a lot of lawyers. Right. Do you think, though, that because, I mean... (laughs) I mean, if you're in the legal industry, then you know that there are many lawyers in these situations you just described before coronavirus hit, right? Yes. But I think sometimes you think you're the only one because you're comparing yourself to everyone. But now you know you're not the only one. And there's maybe more safeguards. Like, for instance, you can put off your mortgage without a penalty. You can put off your student loans without a penalty. Does that help a little bit? Or no, because you still don't know what's going to happen next month. And not knowing what's going to happen and having no control over it is extremely anxiety-provoking. I, I, I can talk. I, I don't like to generalize because mm-hmm. I don't know people. Talk about people I don't know. I can talk about myself. Either either I hear it anecdotally, and if I don't, I just talk about my own situation. Absolutely, it's anxiety-inducing. When this all went down, I thought about and now. I want to preface this. I consider myself extremely privileged. And again, we may not all, we're not all in the same boat, right? Mm -hmm. We're all in different privileged situations or non-privileged where we sit at our homes. It was extremely anxiety provoking for me because that's how I made my living, public speaking. And so I don't know what the next month holds, what the next two months hold, what the next three months hold. And all of a sudden, just like when people go into early recovery is a problem, you're projecting out the worst, the absolute worst, the human mm-hmm. tendency to project out the disaster and all of us. Well, and that's what law school teaches you to plan for, right? Is to plan for the worst case scenario. That's right. Then all of a sudden, I find myself refreshing the John Hopkins COVID stat every three minutes. Then uh-huh. all of a sudden, I'm doing this. Then all of a sudden, and that all builds on itself until you make yourself frantic. And when you make yourself frantic and build up all that tension within yourself, that is a strong trigger into problem drinking or other or some other destructive behavior, especially in a profession where so many of us are already struggling with that. So can you share with us what has worked for you for staying healthy when those triggers come up? What has worked for me were lessons that I have learned to some extent in my recovery. I am in what is known as 12-step, the largest for my problem drinking and my cocaine use. The most well-known of those is Alcoholics Anonymous, but there are other ones. And there's a saying, I'm not a big saying person, but there's a saying I learned in my group, take everything one day at a time, one moment at a time. And that can be hard sometime. And I combine that with mindfulness 
and try to focus every morning on the fact that there are things I have control over and things I don't have control over. Every morning, what do I have control over? I have control over my effort. I have control over you know, how I relate to my family, how I relate to my pets. Those are the things I have control over. What I don't have control over are what's said on social media, what's going on politically, what is spreading around me, because those are all the things that can freak people out and trigger different anxiety, different angers, different emotions. Just look on Facebook, look on Twitter, and you see that. I have control over wearing my mask. That's it. I can't freak out every time I go out over who's doing what, who's wearing what. <laughs> that is a really good point. I see a lot of freakouts about who's wearing a mask right. and who's not. But it, it, it's, it's, it's relevant to staying grounded and staying present because when I don't do that, that can be a huge trigger into something that takes me towards a relapse. So going over 13 years of recovery, I've learned to stay present. And I try to apply that in the current pandemic situation. Stay present in this moment. And I do a lot of that, too, by uh, thinking about what I have to do with my day. Uh, if I just sit around in my pajamas, that can allow me to get more focused on things I can't control. So I've started getting dressed, whether um, uh, I have stuff planned or not, to restore some sense of routine. For, because for me, as someone in recovery, part of my personal recovery is, has been routine. Right, because you can control that to a certain extent, right? I can control my routine and I can control every day uh, setting goals, setting goals that actually propel me forward in my speaking, in my book that I'm working on, in my personal relationships with my wife and, and my family and all those things and the family I can't see, my two brothers, my mother. So I do a lot of things to uh, incrementally throughout the day to keep me grounded and not get as focused on all of the chaos because chaos breeds tension, chaos breeds anxiety, chaos breeds depression, chaos can breed uh, triggers into more problematic drinking for somebody who's already struggling. No, that's really good advice. Um, I've read a little bit about online 12-step meetings. Do you have any advice or thoughts on those if you've been involved with them during this that you're sure, um, comfortable I, sure. sharing with me? I am. Connection, connection, connection. One of the biggest things about recovery is connection, connecting with people, connecting with people who will support you, connecting with people who will empathize with you, connecting with people who will listen to you. When we can't is it better to have the personal connection in a room where we have the ability, not so much now, where we used to have the ability to touch, to hug, and all those things? Sure. But when you don't have that, absolutely online meetings are still connection. Example, one of the most stressful moments in my last few years was uh, the psychiatrist who I've been treating with for the last 15 years, said to me, Brian, I'm going into partial retirement and I'm mm. moving to Detroit. <gasps> you could hear mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, I'm no longer going to have that connection. 
And now we do teletherapy. Would it be better? Is it different in the room with them? Absolutely. That personal, that warmth where you can feel the body heat, where you can feel the inflection, where you can see the inflection, you can see facial expressions. Absolutely. But it's still connection and it's still trust. I can always change therapists, but I I don't want to have to rebuild the trust. Right, of course. That is connection. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Brian and I are going to discuss what he misses about life before the pandemic and things he doesn't as well. We'll be right back. Designed specifically for the legal industry, LawPay provides attorneys with a simple, secure way to accept client credit card and e-check payments online. LawPay understands unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. Visit LawPay.com ABA to learn more. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to the first episode in a special series of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. Joining me today is Brian Cuban, an attorney who writes and speaks frequently about lawyers and mental health. Brian, what's the one thing you miss the most about life before the pandemic? Hugs. That is the one thing I miss the most is hugs. When I speak, when I finish, there are people, even in AM law firms and uh, certainly at conferences, there are people who will come up to me with tears in their eyes and we hug and I hear something about their past. And uh, we have these moments and I, I, I miss that physical contact. I really do because, and I know that is never going to be the same. I miss that, the hugs. You think that will never be the same? I'm 59 years old. Maybe not in my lifetime. I don't know. Interesting. If wow. there's a vaccine in a two or three years, uh, maybe I, let me backtrack on that. Uh, it's not going to be anytime soon. Okay. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I, I never thought of it that way. And I, wow. What are some things you don't miss about what life was like before this? I don't miss the feeling that I have to be somewhere and do something for the sake of being somewhere and doing something. I enjoy, and again, I'm, I'm an introvert. The uh, social isolation part hasn't been as tough on me as it is for some people because part of my recovery was shrinking my world into a box that I've become very comfortable in. Now, a lot of people aren't. A lot of people need that going out, going out, going out. I don't miss that kind of... Uh, feeling the need to be somewhere or to do something versus just sitting here with my cats, with my wife, and and just being with me. And now I don't feel the stress of the need to do that. Do you think when things open back up, and in fact, you're in Dallas where things are already opening back up, right? Yes. Do you think that when people are more comfortable going out again, Will you pick up to how things were before, or maybe you'll make some changes? Sure. No, I mean, I'm always, in terms of the things my wife and I do, where, again, she's kind of like me, where we're not the need-to-be-out people, but uh, in terms of restaurants and that kind of thing that we enjoy, and certainly seeing our families, which is uh, a stress on, on both of us, I think we will slowly ease into it. From a mm-hmm. speaking standpoint, uh, 
I'm just waiting for conferences and law firms to decide how they want to ease back into it. I'm certainly willing to uh, change the way I interact with people from that. I don't think it's always going to be from my from my house. I think we've conferences will come back, albeit differently. I think law firms, once they figure out how to reintegrate and get everyone back to work, will start having those discussions again because those discussions are going to be more important than ever, right? How, how do we we now know that compassionate community and understanding that uh, lawyers are people too and have life stories uh, is important. Understanding that our colleagues amount to more than their bill sheets. And uh, I think law firms and the profession will come back more in tune to that and we will be back in a mental health discussion. What that will look like, I don't know. But then that was my next question, of course. Do you have any ideas about how conferences might be different going sure, forward? I do. I do. I think uh, we have to remember that most conferences, and from somebody who's been to hundreds of them, uh, most conferences are smaller. Most nonprofit charity events are small. So if you have a conference that generally bring a local bar association, a uh, something like that, a conference that may bring in two or 300 people, I think that's going to be a much easier change than the, say, ABA conference or other conference, legal tech or whatever that brings in, right, the thousands or whatever they bring in over the course of a few days. My guess is that we will see fewer exhibit areas. Uh, exhibits will be done differently. We will see conferences, the larger conferences, broken into multiple days uh, with speakers, and it will be less about filling spots and more about impactful speakers speaking over the course of a couple days. And so you pick a day, that's the day you go, and there'll be less foot traffic. And they will handle all the social distancing guidelines as other people do. Conferences will come back. People want to connect. People need to connect. We are social. This is biological. This isn't something, this isn't a social construct. This is a biological construct that we are creatures of connection that date back to the first storytellers back in the, whenever that started, you know, whenever Cubans began to connect, how many years ago? So this is a drive in all of us. We will reconnect on a physical level. It will just look a little different and conferences will adjust. Every conference isn't a mega conference. They'll figure it out. Could you see conferences in some instances perhaps staying online? I mean, I know from previous stories I've done that some people who go to conferences don't enjoy it. And they're like, just like, there's a lot of anxiety for them sometimes. They don't like to get out of their routine. But I don't know how you can do business development as well if you're not meeting people face to face, which seems to be a key reason for many conferences. I think conferences are going to offer that option. Mm. I, you could see, I could see the ABA, the legal tech. Okay, we're going to, you can attend by Zoom. We're going to Zoom it as well. You can attend personally. It costs this much. You can attend by Zoom. It costs this much and pick the things you want to do. They're going to adjust. And uh, I mean, a lot of people love the conferences because they're not just business connection. You see your friends. You see your colleagues. Yeah, you have fun. Conferences are as much about connection as business. I don't mm. see that going away. I just see it changing. I'm curious, has your time at home during these past few months where life showed down, has it kind of shed a light on maybe some things in your life that weren't working that you think you might change going forward? 
sure. I, I'm, I'm working on, uh, from a recovery standpoint, I've gotten pretty good at the things that work for me and don't. And I'm pretty good at noticing when I'm getting a little bit off the beam in terms of, for me, it was getting caught up and just sitting around in anxiety ridden. And what I did as I circling back as I changed, I became more structured in my day. That is what I think I have gotten most out of this is that I was more apt to leisure around at home in my downtime versus structuring and having something to propel me forward in my day versus waiting for something to propel me forward, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It sure does. And so I think that is the biggest change for me coming out of this. I read in Above the Law piece where you wrote about being in quarantine, your mind will get stuck on regrets from the time in life before you got sober. And, you know, as you said earlier, if you can't control it, that's not really a healthy place to be. How have you been dealing with those feelings? That's a great question because it comes and goes. Uh, mm -hmm. I have all of a sudden, what, what this, uh, what this pandemic uh, initially did for me was put me into a uh, funk where I realized, wow, I'm 59. I'm on the cusp of a high risk group. When did that happen? Mm. Uh, wasn't I just 25? <laughs> wasn't mm -hmm. I just in law school at 24, 25? When did that happen? And uh, I lost my father a year and a half ago, and that that's still raw to me. So all oh, of sorry. these things, because we were, thank you, all these things were very, we were very close. So this really made me, at least starting out, hyper aware of my mortality. Mm -hmm. And when I became hyper aware of my mortality, I started getting into the mindset, this is just my my a year of my life is a match is being lit to or whatever, however long this lasts. Right. Mm -hmm. And I sat down and, and I realized my wife was helpful with this. My brothers were helpful with this. I'm in that funk because I'm sitting around on the couch, allowing it to happen to me. I get in that funk when I allow life to happen versus taking joy in the things I am passionate about, my writing, my work, my speaking, and pushing those forward every day. And when I started doing that, I started thinking less about the regrets. I get asked all the time, do you have regrets about, and this is common in recovery, do you have regrets about all the years where you were smart and blow and drinking and accomplished nothing in my life? Sure. But they're not the regrets of changing that, right? Because I call that revisionist recovery. I can't go back and change that. Those things, as damaging as they were in certain events, brought me to where I am today, having this pod on this podcast in a totally different spot, in a totally different Brian that uh, didn't exist back then. But I do regret the people I hurt along the way, and I and and I regret that because I left some collateral damage. So once again, I can't go back and change that. What I can, what can I do? I can stay focused in the moment, and I can make living amends by trying to change my little part of the world one person at a time in a positive way. You've mentioned uh, your family a few times. Do you mind telling us a bit about them? No, not at all. Uh, my older brother, Mark, and uh, is very well known, obviously. Uh, he uh, owns the Dallas Mavericks and Shark Tank and Entrepreneur and has been vocal about different things during the pandemic. I have a younger brother, Jeff, uh, who works for my older brother, Mark. And uh, I have my mom who lives in the house we grew up in Pittsburgh, and my dad 
lived across the street from me uh, here in Dallas until he passed a year and a half, year and a half ago. And we're all very close. Uh, Mark and Jeff live walking distance to me. Oh, nice. And uh, that that's not an accident. And so uh. we're all, uh, we text and we do what we can and we speak on the phone. And uh, it's, I miss getting together with them. Uh, but that will happen again. I recently, uh, you know, we did a socially distance over my brother's house, just him, my wife and his wife, uh, where we all sat more than six feet apart and yelled at each other with our masks on <laughs> and yelled over each other at our, with our masks on. And uh, that's as much uh, that's as much calculated risk as we've taken. Did you think that was better or worse than a Zoom call with friends or family? It was better because uh, uh, it's it, it's still it's still the physical, right? Uh-huh. I want to see my brother. I want I want to see my family. So it it was better. It was it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was better. But it is what it is, and uh, we have to think. Uh, some people may say that's too risky, and that's fine. But uh, I think you get to the point where you look at everything and say, what's what is the calculated risk and probabilities here? And we followed all CDC guidelines and all local health guidelines. And uh, it was nice. It was nice. You've recently uh, put out some tweets asking the question if lawyers are becoming more compassionate. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and again, this is anecdotally, I'd love to see someone uh, look at data and quantify it in terms of that, just as I'm hoping we'll see quantified uh, how the pandemic has affected an already critical level profession on problem drinking, depression, and mental health issues. I see it on Twitter. I see it on Facebook. We are absolutely uh, more compassionate to each other. Now, how will this translate when we, quote unquote, get back to, quote unquote, normal, whatever normal looks like, right? When the AMLA associates go back to the firm and all of a sudden, you know, billing, 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 when the... uh, when the lawyers go back to their solo practices, how will we reach out to them? How will we connect to them so they don't feel so socially isolated uh, moving forward? Uh, because it's a big problem, and it was a big problem before the pandemic. So, yes, situationally, absolutely, I have seen a exponential increase in our ability to be empathetic, be compassionate. We have that ability. Everyone has that ability, and but we don't always express it, right? We get caught up in our own day, in our own problems, in our own needs, and we don't always reach out or we don't, don't always open ourselves to reaching out. One of the conversations I had with a uh, struggling lawyer not long ago was uh, I talk about compassionate circle. Who's your compassionate circle? And what a compassionate circle is, is creating a circle of all the people you care about and love and who love you and who you can reach out to based on different feelings you're having. I talked to this person about this. I talked to this person about this. And they had those people, but they hadn't reached out to them. Why? Well, they're struggling. They have their kids and they have their families. I can't burden them. I can't burden them. And I hear this and it's hard. And that is uh, the, that's projection, right? You're, you're projecting out the worst. And it's hard to uh, bring people, and I've gone through this to a spot. No, they want to hear from you, right? Everyone mm-hmm. wants to connect. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to connect. Yeah, well, that's, that's good news. And that's everything I have for you today, Brian. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure.
Oh, great. And I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you hear today, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.